0: vividly remember my dad driving, listening to music and him telling us how it's all about errors, it's all about getting radical, people are starting to go above the lip, we need to skateboard because that's what's going to take our surfing to new levels.
1: And I think that's why I use the name Big Dick Power Surfer for that, because I think when you see that name, you can't possibly think that... This person is being serious or genuine with what they're saying. To me, using that name allows me to make jokes that might be otherwise kind of offensive.
2: Hello and welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson and this week we have two interviews. The first is with Stab's new editor-in-chief, Mr. Brendan Buckley, who is currently in Costa Rica for the latest edition of Stab High. And we chatted about his plans for Stab's editorial, humour in surfing, or the lack thereof of it, and surfing every single day instead of just being a useless, lazy, fat, stupid, worthless, excuse-riddled, weak, washed-up, balls-of-a-gorilla loser. The second interview is via Mikey Saramella, who is also in Costa Rica, and he chatted to Nathan Fletcher. Before we get to those chats, let's chat about some surf news. It's been about as busy as weeks get in surfing. We've moved on to Rottnest Island now, but the huge news out of Margaret River was John John's injury. And how many world titles is John's John's body going to take from him? Also, how many Olympic goals will those feeble knees steal away from the great man? Possibly the greatest man ever. Interestingly though, it wasn't the same knee that he's previously injured. He tore his ACL twice, once at Karamas and the other one at Sacorima in Brazil. But this time it was his front leg, his left one, that sent him home. And these are pretty shitty inventions. The anatomy of knee... It's like a ball on a string of ligament and cartilage, and they're extremely vulnerable, especially when you're grinding them against walls of that fast-moving Indian Ocean swell like John did when he injured his knee uh, recently at Margaret River. John John pretty much went from his wetsuit to Perth to Sydney to LAX to Newport Beach to the operating table of Warren Kramer. And the exact details of the injury haven't been revealed yet. But Mikey Saramella wrote on StabMag.com that we're still unclear how John can have this surgery and be ready for the Olympics. The Olympics are scheduled to run from the 25th of July to the 1st of August, which means John now, he's only got just over two months to be ready. And John's most recent comment on Instagram, it was, which was a photo of him in hospital, and he was surrounded by his wife, the surgeon, his filmer, It was also, I saw It's one of those classic photos where they're all like, everyone's really squashing in to make, so that they fit in a frame, but the camera's wide enough so there's a lot of negative space surrounding them. So the squashing is actually unnecessary and hilarious. Anyway, the caption reads, I woke up to the report from Dr. Warren Kramer that everything went as well as possible and the procedure I had will give me the opportunity to surf at full strength sooner than I had hoped. Feeling motivated to really know that the Olympics are attainable. I'm excited for this and I'm going to do everything I can to make it happen. And Kolohe had an ankle surgery on April 21 with the exact same doctor and John had that surgery on May 11 which means Kolohe has a three-week healing head start on John. Different injuries but... He's still there with a head start. And then even more cosmically, the last surgery that Kelly Slater had was also from that same doctor, Dr. Kramer. Uh, He really is a doctor to the surf stars. Kelly, as you know, is first in line for the Olympics if Klohe or John pulls out. So Mr. Kramer is pulling the strings, literally the strings, the ligament strings, to the entire male side of the U.S. Olympic surf team. And there is actually an upside to these injuries a bit of a silver lining in that Chloe and John John don't have to attend the ISA Games on June 6th. The ISA Games, it's, it's like a bit of a bureaucratic inclusion with World Tour surfers already qualifying in like, via their 2019 WSL ratings. But there's just this additional comp, the additional hoop that all the surfers have to jump through uh, to be included in the Olympics, which is kind of unnecessarily, and, and and something they would never do otherwise. But they are the ISA Games are really milking uh, the surfers wanting to be part of the Olympics and making them attend this event unless you've got a an, a decent excuse, which is being injured, I guess, is one of them. Taj Burrow was given a spot in the Rottnest Pro, and everyone was extremely excited and kind of lost their minds at the idea of of seeing Taj in a jersey again. And when Taj secured his spot, he started training at the gym and his strongest surfing suit is definitely his icy backhand, which is perfect for that Strickland Bay left. It's been five years since Taj was on tour and surfing moves quick, so it was never going to be easy for him. But we saw what Taj could do in Stab in the Dark and we know... But he still has the potential to go really far in a world tour event uh, until, of course, he didn't. He went nowhere, knocked out in the elimination round. He was beaten by the inconsistent and unimpressive waves more than anything. He lost his first heat where he only caught one wave at the very end and got 0.7 for that. Uh, There was almost no waves in that heat. The second heat wasn't much better. The waves were smaller and still very inconsistent. After that heat was paused, there was a little shark scare there for a moment. And then uh, Griffin Pinto and Jack Freestone and Taj headed back out and and they took him down. But again, I feel like he was beaten by the conditions there more than anything. And after watching the last couple of events, I've realized that entertaining heats don't really come from pumping waves. They come from dynamic. Moments and lots of opportunity and lead changes. Even if the waves are pumping, it's not that interesting unless there's enough ways for each surfer to have plenty of opportunity and for that seesaw, those seesaw battles to, to start happening. And anyway, that did not happen for Taj. Everyone at Stab was particularly interested to see Taj because he had Stab in the dark boards uh, with him for the event that he was potentially going to ride. He had the Pukus by Axel Lorenz and the CI by Britt Merrick. He didn't have the sharp eye because he he's actually buckled that one. Taj has surfed these boards so much since Stab in the Dark that, uh, yeah, that one, that one bit the dust. And Taj was actually the first Stab in the Dark surfer in history to refuse to give the boards back because he, he loved them so much. Let's chat to Brendan Buckley, Buck, as he's known, has been contributing to Stab for a long time. You might know his moniker, Big Dick Power Surfer. He's uh, other otherwise known as the CEO of the ASP, a self-appointed position. There, he's a hilarious man, and I can't wait to read more of his funny and interesting shit that he writes. Uh, now that he's Stab's new editor in chief, and the other thing about Buck is that he he properly rips not just, like, surf's good for a mad guy, Rips, but he's an extremely talented surfer by any standard and he's a committed daily surfer. And We talked about it in the interview, but his obsession with surfing and his dedication to it just makes his riding full of interesting in-the-water experiences and nuance about the actual act of surfing and surf culture that people who don't surf as well or aren't as immersed just don't have access to, and it's great. I think I love him. So I'll probably start this interview by doing a little introduction, saying some nice things about you. So what what sort of things do you think I'll say?
1: That's hard to say. Uh, I don't have a rat tail anymore. I feel like you would have brought that up. I feel like that's a nice thing to share about somebody. Remember last time we spoke, I had like a rat tail? Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> what else would come up in a complimentary introduction about Brendan Buckley?
1: I'm not sure if we've worked together long enough for you to say really too many nice things about me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll think of some. I, 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 didn't, I didn't necessarily mean that would be sincere. Wow.
1: Well, what, what kind of nice things are you going to say about me then?
2: I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure that out.
1: Okay. Because I might disagree with them. <laughs>
2: Are you trying to get like a bad boy image going?
1: (laughs) Maybe. I still think John needs to know that Gabriel's a good guy.
2: Yeah, that would be a nice transition. You're in Costa Rica at the moment. You live in France, but you've been on the road and in Costa Rica for a little while.
1: I don't know. The last time I went here was like 10 years ago. And for some reason, I left with the impression that it was like a place where like torch people from Florida go to surf and then get like shitty nautical themed tattoos. (laughs) And... I didn't realize it gets such good waves like it's been like there have been some really good mornings out in front of the house and there's just nobody in the water it's like this like I think it's maybe a 10 mile stretch of beach but the it's just this big open stretch of beach there's nobody around the waves have been firing and I just can't leave that like there's other waves around but when there's a wave right in front of the house that's firing and nobody's on it I, I can't I just I'm not gonna go anywhere
2: so you live in the dream um, you're getting paid right now and you're surfing your brains out. That's on the company dime. That, that's, that's the pro surf dream that you, you kicked it off with.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Sammy, Tom, <laughs> boys.
2: <laughs> so you, all, you transitioned from a struggling pro surfer to a surf rider. At first, you started out at Surfing Magazine. But you were on that pro surf program yourself. Was it hard to give up the dream and, and then start to write about other people's dream and them having fun
1: um I was kind of yeah this is a weird question um because that was actually a pretty hard time for me like the transition yeah luckily the crew at surfing like they were super cool and understanding and so they let me um still run stickers on my board for like a year and I'd be able to go off and get like 317th in a QS. So it would like help with the transition. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that was the fucking easiest thing ever. No, my life didn't change that much. Like <laughs> I still, I was still surfing a ton. It wasn't even like a question in my mind. It, like it, I got the opportunity. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is different. This is exciting. I'm obviously still going to be surfing and thinking about surfing and doing, but yeah. Doing everything I love and just exposing myself to something new and learning a ton. So no, that was that was an easy decision.
2: And so how professional were you? You were you were chasing the tour, you were getting paid? No,
1: no, 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 no. I existed at a time when you could be just like a regional guy and yeah. magazines were still a thing. So I got like really good at flyaways. <laughs> I could just do flyaway errors and not land them and then get in a magazine. And I mean, I never like, I know I never went too far with it. Like, I know I at least got photos in all the big three in the US back in the day, like Surfer, Surfing, and Transworld, and then would have things going with like the little regional mags. But I was way, way, way more focused on that than like, anything competitive. I, I guess I got featured in some movies, some of them are kind of regional, but I know I at least snuck into like one of the old Transworld films for a few clips. But it was all that side of it. Like it was all just pretty much trying to do airs really. I didn't really like doing turns.
2: You have just wrote your introduction ed letter on the site, and it came with a nice photo of you doing a a nice forehand punt. And so you you still got the you still got the air air skills.
1: I still got them. But one thing that's been a trip, like I think like four people have gotten hurt this trip trying airs out of like sixteen surfers or maybe twenty. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess I still, I still love to do airs. It's still like my other than getting tube, like my favorite thing to do in surfing, but to like hit a monstrous section anymore at like 31, I just, I'm not going to do that. Like the risk reward there for me, like, I don't know. I still, yeah, I'll still do them, but (laughs) just not going to throw myself off a miola section.
2: Yeah. Shit. You started working at Surf thing mag and then you went on to work at quicksilver and that's when you started contributing to stab and now you, after working with quicksilver and having a pretty small amount of editorial being contributed to stab you've 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 taken the opposite path and left the big company and gone on and come back to work at stab as the editor uh, what what led to that decision
1: um I think it was just too good of an opportunity to say no to. I think with all the changes, with going to a pay model and seeing that, that you know, that's working, it's feasible, um, and having the opportunity, I didn't, I was never like editor in chief at surfing. I think I was online editor. I learned a lot at Quicksilver and had a good time for five years, but this thing came my way and I couldn't say no.
2: Yeah. and people don't often understand the size of stab it i think they also also get a little bit confused about the brief period when it when it was owned by surf stitch which is is a big company that moves a lot of products and but stab essentially is a really small company it's it's run it was founded and and still is run by surfers and and we're really small really small team it's very different from the world of of a quicksilver that's a huge international company and and has a big marketing budget and is doing all these big and exciting things like we're pretty like we're pretty tiny operation a few people in the states a few people in australia uh and then you're in france you're going to be like the, the, o- the odd european that's just that's contributing from over there so what are your plans what do you want what do you want to do with with the title as editor-in-chief
1: I think it all just comes back to surfing, and especially keeping surfing fun. Um, A lot of, I think what's happening in the surf world right now is people forget about the core audience. And I, I wrote about how I feel about core in that letter that you referenced earlier. But core to me is just people who love surfing, and. I think a lot of people have forgotten about that audience and just try to go way too broad and so I just want to keep that person happy and I want to make them think about surfing differently at times I want to inspire them to do it I just want to make it feel like surfing by people who love surfing and for people who love surfing and keep it fun keep it interesting do some funny shit do some insightful shit
2: yeah, and I th- uh, w- w- the reason Sam and Tom and, and everyone at Stab was so keen to get you on board uh, as editor uh, is just, you're a brilliant writer and a great mind, but I, I think your, your strongest point is, is your humor. And I'm going to read a little quote to you uh, that you wrote a while back on this topic. You said, I'm on the belief that surfing needs to stop taking itself so seriously. Fuck all these rehearsed social media rhetorics like Medina is God or Medina is the devil or I'm an angry adult who radiates good vibes solely by reacting negatively negatively to anything less than contrived positivity on social media. Let's just have fun. And so you wrote that a little while ago. Is surf culture uh, still too serious or has it lightened up a little?
1: in the terms of humor yeah i just think it's something like when i write stuff that is on the humorous side i'm just trying to make somebody laugh like i just everybody knows the power of a laugh and how it can just like change a day change a mood get you out of kind of a bad cycle and just and almost create some distance from whatever you're feeling that's dragging you down and so when i write stuff like that that's all that i'm trying to do um And I think that's why I use the name Big Dick Power Surfer for that, because I think when you see that name, you can't possibly think that this person is being serious or genuine with what they're saying. That's why I think it like, to me using that name allows me to be like, not quite critical, but just make jokes that might be otherwise kind of offensive because you could tell that it's a joke because it's coming from Big Dick Power Surfer. Like obviously it's not serious.
2: (laughs) Not just a power surfer, a big dicked one.
1: A big, big power surfer, yeah.
2: It's funny uh, that was something that uh, a series or a column that you've written for Stav for a really long time, and I always loved that column. And you would you would have some running jokes in there, and one of them was uh, one about Ricardo Christie, the pro surfer from New Zealand that was on tour for a brief period. And I think we were in a meeting the other day, and and Stace Galbraith was in the meeting, and and he was quick to chirp oh you still having fun making fun of ricardo Christie? like i I don't think he was necessarily on board with the joke he was i think he was trying to like stick up for ricardo and and didn't didn't see it as so funny
1: yeah i mean that's why i guess that's why i said why like the big dick power surfer comes into play like i i wouldn't you know i i think when it comes from that name you have to see that it's just taking the piss you know I, i i i hope that it comes off in a way that reads like I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody and I'm literally just trying to go into some weird areas and hopefully just brighten somebody's day.
2: Have you had much have you had people misinterpret it though and take it seriously, pro surfers that react and and get offended? Surprisingly not. Like
1: there's definitely been some stuff I've published that I'm like, okay, like somebody might come at me here. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a result of of people just getting like having it click, but I've, I've, there's just definitely been things where I thought that would happen. I'm sure it's rubbed some people the wrong way, but it's never been a thing that's been kind of fed back to me. So if I have, I'm sorry, it's not serious, um, but just laugh. It's okay to laugh at yourself sometimes.
2: Hey, I really love a piece you wrote a while back about surfing every single day. And it seemed to really, resonate with our audience because I think maybe we're all just a little bit lazy. I don't really know why. I'm just going to read a little chunk of it now too. You lie to yourself a lot when it comes to surfing, you tell yourself the foam ball chewed you when really you were just too slow, or that your fins released on that turn when you just kind of bogged, or that you charged that last swell when you just caught five shoulders. These delusions are a joy to believe, cherish them. One self-spun lie you could get rid of though, is the idea that you can't surf as much as you'd like to. The truth is, you could spend way more time in the water if you decided to put a little more work in, that, and look at surfing a lot differently. I know this because I surf almost every day. I take trips away from the ocean, but when I'm home, I surf every single day. It's just good for you, both mentally and physically, and if you're here, you probably already have an inherent understanding of that. Let's not make it all fucking spiritual. That story goes on to have all these brilliant tips on how to surf more and the virtues of surfing more. Why do you think that resonated with so many people, that story?
1: I think maybe it made people realize that they can surf more. I think at the end of the day, like if you, I don't know, I know that I'm in a really lucky position. I'm well, well, well aware of that fact. But even friends that have, people I know that have like super demanding jobs and a bunch of kids, stuff like that, like I know people like that who prioritize surfing and I know people like that who don't, but I see enough of how they spend their time to know that if they wanted to, like, they could like even Instagram scrolls add up. Like you could spend thirty minutes doing that throughout the course of your day, or you can just find a quick little window to go out there and get three waves. And I'd say almost ten times out of ten, your day's gonna be better. Like I,
2: yeah, I think we're all a little bit lazy and complacent, and I and it was probably something that it was just a huge benefit for everyone here because the the, sp- the on effects, the health the mental health the physical health a little bit of vitamin d from the sun and then a little daily achievement if you if you do a decent cutback or something it's it does it definitely makes your life better and we all get a little little lazy and that i heard someone talking once recently and i just it really it also fired me up in the same way your story did but he he was a guy that was approaching his 40s and he said i've only got you know, who knows, like maybe ten years most of a decent tube stance left, I've got to go out and get as many barrels as I can before my body starts seizing up a little bit and I can't get in a decent crouch to get barreled. And I was like, Holy shit, yeah, like our our body's ability is so finite. And if we're not if we're complacent and not surfing that much, then we're we're probably gonna regret it when we when we seize up.
1: For sure. That's such a better way to put it, like, you know, I guess yeah, the the extreme thing there would be like we're gonna die one day but that seems so probably distant to a lot of people whereas like a lot of people can probably relate to like already feeling in their body start acting different Mm. and so that's a that's a really nice way to put it because it's super relatable that's that's good only so many years of the tube stands left make it count
2: i always love it when you when you write your stab forwards the stab newsletter and then some of your pieces in this on the site there's always a one last thing that you put at the bottom and i'm going to read out some of those now and then just get you to elaborate on or, or give me a little uh a little bit of feedback on so first one is if a floater isn't somewhat scary the section wasn't worthy
1: i think floaters are one of the sketchiest thing you can do in surfing if you do it on a proper section like it's one thing if it's you know a lower section you kind of just float over something but if you do it on like a heavy reef or beach break section, then it's terrifying. Like I think you have less control coming down from a floater than you do with an air, and so I back. I back a hardcore floater. Okay,
2: Into Yeah. It. So, but if the section isn't isn't scary enough, because floaters are one of the funnest things you can do. They're up there with like foam climbs. It's like just so satisfying. But if if this if the section isn't isn't scary, then just flick off.
1: I don't know. Find a better way. Maybe like. Get around it and try to hit that first deep part of the wave rather than than floating it and getting ahead of it.
2: That's good advice. All right, next one. Yeah, surf coach. (laughs) Big dick, surf coach. Hit me up for tips. (laughs) All right, next one. Putting on a cold, wet wet wetsuit on a cold, wet day makes you a stronger and more resolute human being.
1: Oh, that I just agree with entirely. Yeah, That's like the hardest thing to do. Once it's on, you're fine. Like you have that like 30 seconds where it's miserable and then you're fine once it's on. But I feel like, especially if the waves are kind of shit, like that's the hardest thing to do mentally. You just don't want to do it.
2: Yo, it's, and so it's I think psycho. Doing it, especially that part where you've got the legs on and then you've got to peel it up over your top section and like all those vital organs get cold. It It's psycho.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I believe in that one. Sometimes I tell myself that it's like, especially when I'm bringing groceries in from the car too. And I just have to, it's the winter and I see my suit and I'm like, can't really grab it in this load. Maybe I'll come back down. Like I'm, I live on a third floor of an apartment and it's just always a hassle to park. And so there's times where I'll like, look at my suit and be like, tell myself like, no, I'm going to do it just to just so I have to put on a cold wetty. When in reality, I'm just too lazy to come back down and grab it, but I have weird little battles with myself sometimes <laughs> in the winter in France like that.
2: Oh man, I'm talking about putting on a wetsuit on the east coast of Australia, which is, is nothing compared to the, you're doing like proper Wim Hof type exercises when you put a wetty on over there on a cold day.
1: Well, that's I feel so lucky like to have grown up where I grew up. I grew up in New Jersey. And it's like, I think it's perfect because it gets freezing cold, so you learn to deal with that. The waves get really good, so you learn to appreciate getting tubed. But it also gets really, really bad, so you learn to, like, appreciate any bit of swell you get and, like, always just be looking to surf, have, like, really low standards. And I really think it set me up to, like appreciate pretty much anything in surfing. Like I couldn't imagine coming from like a place that just gets sick waves in boardies all year. Like that would be so hard to go anywhere else.
2: I know a lot of Hawaiian pros and also Indonesian pros, they're they're way less motivated to travel because they've got the best waves right there in, in boardies. And that makes sense to me. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's super understandable. Yeah, so I think if you grew up in like somewhere that's grindy, awesome. And if it's like cold and grindy, you're just set.
2: Yeah. All right, next one. The world needs more backside roundhouse to laybacks.
1: Oh, that's just a simple fact. Yeah, I, I,
2: I agree with that one. I love that. Yeah. What else do you love? Are you goofy? Yeah, I'm goofy. Okay. Who do you see when you
1: imagine that?
2: Um, God, I didn't actually see anyone. I certainly didn't see myself. I mean, if I try and think about it right now, I really like the... The hyper limber people, like a Corey Lopez, you might think they might not be because he's not a tiny guy, but like he just has that elasto man. And then if I if I go back into the rolodex of yesteryears, I think of Timmy Curran. He was someone that Ooh. was super limber and could really like lay back and then pop back up. So I think he, I think I remember him doing a few um, backside roundhouses to laybacks. Who, who do you imagine? It's kind of funny
1: that you said two Americans because my I don't know why I just went Aki and Sean Cannizzaro.
2: Oh my god! I grew up in the Ooh. same town as Sean Cannizzaro, sh- and he he's like a pioneer of my other favorite move. Well, or not a pioneer, but he was a he was fluent in one of my other favorite moves, the Carving Three.
1: Ooh, yeah! I love the way that guy serves.
2: Yeah, man, he's he's just one of the best humans. He's so humble funny and just unassuming in any way so like you're hanging out with him and he in no way has uh, the ego or anything you would just if you didn't know he was had the talent and creativity that he did in the water then you would just be chatting to this guy and just go oh yeah it's a pretty regular guy and then he goes in the water and he's just he's fucking amazing
1: what was the taylor Steele movie at a part was it campaign two
2: we're like yeah yeah i was actually kind of bummed on that part because he i mean he riff, he's riffing but he's surfing the shittiest waves in that in that bit
1: can you can you do the song
2: <laughs> no i can't can you
1: i don't remember is it the don't get
2: upset. That yeah, one. I think it is. That sounds right. I know Taylor Steele had a song that he loved for that part and he couldn't get it cleared. And he had to like chuck that one in with not much timing. So that was another... I was like really bummed because I felt like Kansas in a Taylor Steele movie with the whole part. But it was, I didn't feel like it represent, represented his potential as much.
1: Okay. And are we sure this wasn't Stranger Than Fiction?
2: Oh, no, it was Stranger Than Fiction.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of had the... Campaign two didn't feel right.
2: Yeah, 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 no, you're right. It was. Hey, y'all, uh, watch that after this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. Our world would function more seamlessly if we had constructed a society in which, no matter where you are, you could pay some kids five dollars to scrape the wax off your board.
1: I hate taking the wax off my boards. I hate it, especially when you have to do it on like multiple boards, especially when it's winter in France and you've been just rubbing on that thing in a wetty for months, and it's just thick and black, and your board weighs five extra pounds. Like, I don't know, at 31 I just feel like a, kind of a weird person if I'm taking out a hair dryer and like scraping it down in my living room for
0: 30
2: minutes.
1: Like, I feel like it's just the perfect little kid job too do like I, I'd pay a kid five bucks a board for it
2: yeah I think they would do it I don't know if you've ever put this theory to the test because I don't know many kids that don't love those those shiny coins all kids love money
1: yeah but what am I gonna do just like harass some French kid on the
2: street <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> I was just that. I just wish that system like was in place like I just it would help
2: oh it was like a, it was like a franchise you could just go to the local church uh, Child, late, child slavery Dwax wax board shop R us and, um, and get your boards done
1: that's exactly what I'm saying yes
2: <laughs> alright I, I, I love this next one never trust a person who describes any wave over six foot with any odd number that doesn't end in five
1: that's just a rule yeah like that I, that's not you know I didn't think of that on my own that's just a like a a rule that's built in Yeah. But it's true. It's just don't trust them. (laughs) Don't trust them with anything. I find surfing,
2: not like... I actually find surf height just the most ridiculous thing ever. I still can't believe that we still go on. And when I say three foot, and you might be in a different... Even if you're in the same town as me in country, then you still might have probably imagined a different size. But if you go internationally with your three foot, that's going to be such a huge variance of wave size in Hawaii that means you know 10 foot in in California three foot is literally three foot in Australia it's about I don't know it's probably about six foot of wave it's just this completely arbitrary like sort of based on the imperial thing but actually not literally because you, some people measure from the back of the wave in Hawaii they have some weird sacred geometry where they're measuring the size of the tube or something it's just it's just ridiculous and then when you start talking about big waves 20 foot 30 foot like that is just complete nonsense
1: yeah yeah i love it though <laughs> i would like i think it'd be so much more annoying if we had like a system that everybody agreed on
2: yeah that's true actually i like, have just swung me I, just like that
1: yeah i mean it's like the mystery of imagining like pull up arrive at like a surf camp at night and you're meeting somebody and they said it was like three foot today could be four foot tomorrow you're just kind of feeling them out. You're like, oh, okay. Like it says, I, I think that's part of the fun for me.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, let's keep it then. All right, this last one. I could never trust a person who has a stockpile of leash strings.
1: Man, it sounds like I can't trust a lot of people.
2: Yeah, you're quite kind of a paranoid <laughs> guy once you, once you really break I down. I guess
1: so, man. Yeah, this one... Um, Mikey C. probably has, like, 37 <laughs> leash strings. Is like, he a
2: gear guy? Has he, he got, like, little compartments with his sunscreen and wax and, and, and all kinds of organization with his fiends?
1: We've got a few different houses, so I'm not, I haven't seen, like, his board bag. But, like, imagine if that guy had a garage. <laughs> like, imagine all the leash strings. But I trust him, so I guess that rule's kind of, kind of, um, I got to take back my words there. But he, I think he would have a lot of leash strings. I do trust him, I do like him. But in general, I just, I can't ever have more than one at a time. I don't understand how people could acquire more than one at a time. One time I was at Lowers and I realized I didn't have one. I had to take my shoe and I found like an old rusty trash can. And so I took the lace and I had it in both hands and was just rubbing it on the edge of the trash can for a while until it would break. <laughs> and for me that's so much more natural than like having like eight of them just in a drawer at your house
2: <laughs> yeah I guess I, I've every time I, I come how a, many, do you have any well I mean I've I remember once being in a surf shop and they had them on the counter and I was like holy fuck What well, this is amazing and I bought like three or four lost them all instantly and then the other day a friend handed me a board and it had a leash ring in it and I was just like yes he didn't see that. I we'll get is, to keep the least string. Like to me, they're just like these little bits of gold where you just because if you you can be on a trip and have everything so organized and you go to surf some decent sized waves. If you don't have a leggy string, you're ruined. It's just a, a, such an annoying surf losing your board all the time or maybe even getting trashed on the rock. So they're just this one crucial little thing that it, it, that's easy to uh, to forget. And so yeah, I see them and I just pounce on them, but then I, I always lose them.
1: I got I got one for you. Do you think? Do you think the like '90s kind of obsession thing that's happening in surfing will go so far as to bring back leashes that aren't Velcro take them offable?
2: <laughs> like where you have to thread the whole thing through, and there's there's not the rail saver Am I out. wrong?
1: Am I wrong to think people would buy that right now?
2: Oh, I think people would buy that for sure. I think there's a lot of horniness for. For the nineties, and and that would be just how to really complete the the whole package. What about nose guards? Well, nose guards are functional. I, I don't know that they they look stupid, but I, I they're not in the water when you surf, so there's no hydrodynamic problem. Like, why are surfboards even pointy? There's no point in that either. I mean, aesthetically, it's nice. Um, sorry to cut you off, but I'll be
1: layered said the other day i asked him we did like a thing called cheat codes that were i think we've done them in the past but we're bringing them back which is just like random little things you've learned from years and years and years of surfing and he said one of the things he learned was that you just don't need a nose he yeah. had this point exactly like, you don't need them they're, they're pointless
2: well george Greeno, who is surfing's greatest inventor in my eyes probably in everyone's eyes and he, he's so passionate about a couple of things. He's got about five things that he just talks about on loop and one of them is the like pointy surfboard noses and how redundant they are and they're just so dangerous, especially when lineups start to get really crowded.
1: Yeah, we're, we don't need them. But if we have them, you're back in the nose guard.
2: I understand why if a mother was buying or a father was buying their kid uh, a, a, one of their first like shortboards or something... I understand why that would be all about having a nose, nose guard to save their eyeballs from getting poked out. I mean, would, would Derek Hind have lost? Oh, no, I think it was his fin, wasn't it? But, I mean, he lost, a, he lost an eye during a comp due to the board flinging back and attacking him, and that could have easily been his nose, and it might have, been, might have been a different story if there was a nose guard on there. I might start using fin guards, and I don't even care about hydrodynamics and going slow. Just keep myself nice and protected.
1: I'm like uh, I'm like 80% blind out of my right eye because of Finn. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it was a Jordy Smith. I like big fins. It was a size large, a very drivey fin, a beautiful fin. Futures. And, oh, I hit it good with my face. Like, I'd love to say that, that the fin struck me, but, like, I hit that fin. I was coming at it. <laughs> um... It was a windy like I'd been out for a while, like three hours, and it was the wind came up real bad, and I tried an air. I like knew it was gonna be my last wave, tried an air, and the board just started like violently kick flipping. I don't know, it, it was spinning. I wouldn't say violent, but I somehow like in whatever era I was trying, I had a lot of momentum, and I like I should have put my hands up. I think because I was just real tired. I didn't really think that it was gonna happen. But with a lot of speed, I just went, bam! Like, the board was kind of just spinning. I was coming down at it. Um, and now I'm like, yeah, I'm probably like 80% blind on my right eye.
2: Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that.
1: No, it's really not bad. Like, it's it's my right eye and I'm goofy foot. And now I just have an excuse to surf, like, poorly backside for the rest of my life.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of nice. Hey, to bring our conversation full circle, talking about floaters, I just remember that I got hit by the nose of my board in the side of my head, like right next to my ear. If it was a bit higher, it could have really messed me up. And I I tried this floater on a really heavy section and it just, I just got exploded on the landing and got the board, flew up, smashed me in the side of the head. And I came up in this shallow water. I was just standing there and my head was ringing like crazy. And I was feeling around because I couldn't even feel what happened my head was numb and I just put my hands inside the side of my head and I had to drive myself to hospital half concussed and get it all stitched up and uh, I just realized a nose guard probably would have saved me in that scenario or definitely would have saved me
1: wow I think you should I think you should like they'd be so cheap to make I'm sure get them going put like a little tribal logo on them get them (laughs) like on a few noses and you're gonna fucking sell out
2: (laughs) I'll take that advice. I don't like it.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Um, when I had my eye thing happen, I like it wasn't that I was like bleeding, but not that bad. But one of the like, like most vivid memories I have from it is I was in the hospital, and I was told that I'd need stitches. Like I was like bleeding from just under my eye, mm. and you know I just I'm laid back on the table at one point, and they're messing with everything, and then whatever some time passes, and they say, okay, you're good to go. And I said, oh, like, did, did you give me stitches? I didn't feel anything like that. And the guy just goes, chiggity, check this out. I glued you shut. And I was like, what the fuck? What a weird thing to say to a person in this circumstance. <laughs> he said, chiggity, check this out. I glued you shut. He said, chiggity, check this out. I glued you, chiggity, I glued you chiggity, shut. He said, chiggity, check this out.
2: I... Thanks, Bach And be sure to chiggity, chiggity, check out Buck's first letter as editor. Find the link in this episode's description. I've had that experience a few times over the years where doctors that are obviously extremely smart but certainly didn't take any social skills classes in the mix of getting their medical degrees just like those awkward jokes and weird bedside manner that actually makes you feel more sick. Anyway, let's hear from Nate Fletcher, Mikey Sarah Meller interviewed Nate Fletcher over in Costa Rica and is it Costa Rica? Costa Rica, I can never remember which one is the proper pronunciation. Uh, anyway, their chat was very air heavy, which makes sense because they're both there for stab high. Mikey forgot to hit record at the start and then towards the end his mic dropped out. So it was a shit house effort from a technical point of view, but otherwise I really love this chat. I'd listen to anything Nathan Fletcher had to say about anything. He's, he, I mean, he's obviously one of surfing's greats and his legis, legend status is, it's pretty hard to quantify. He, he's a member of the Fletcher dynasty. There's three generations there of Fletcher inventiveness, incredible talent and creativity. That's just been endlessly progressing surfing forward and Nathan in particular just goes huge. He, some of his heirs are the biggest that are, have ever been done. And his wave of chirps, his, his acid drops. He, he just does the hugest, ballsiest shit in surfing. And then you hear him talk and, and he might be one of the most humble pro surfers that has ever existed. I can't think of anyone that has as much of a reason to have a giant ego but is then subsequently completely Egoless as Nathan Fletcher he's smart too, he's not he's not doctor smart like a, like remember enough shit to get a degree in medicine and, and then say awkward shit to your patients so they feel alienated and even worse Nate's intelligence, he, he's more interesting to me, he's, like, he's a unique thinker and he's just got a really unique perspective on stuff.
3: Man, Nate's gonna kill me. We uh, This is our second go, because you'll never guess who forgot to press record. That was me, amateur podcaster. Um, sorry about that, Danny, but we're coming in hot with take two. Nathan?
0: Yeah. We were, was, that was just a rehearsal, anyway. <laughs> yeah,
3: I hope you have all your answers
0: sorted, now. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so, how the hell are you? I'm good. You're good. Same as I was. We're good. <laughs> so things are good. Actually, uh, I'm really good. We're in Costa Rica, so I got my family here, and the waves are good, so it just really doesn't get better, I don't think. Have you spent a lot of time down here? Um, short bits. So I've been here probably six or seven times, but only for a week or a couple days at a time. Yeah. Who did you come down here with? Um, I've come down here multiple times. I've come with the Quicksilver guys, like the first times, and then the air shows. And then I'd come for Domus. Came with like Bruce a couple times.
3: You were obviously on that Indo trip last year. I'm sure everybody remembers the air at Macaroni's. That was just an absolutely massive straight air that you basically bottom turned out of a barrel into, which still blows my mind. Um, what was that trip like compared to this one? Like where do you see the difference in surfing and maybe even in kind of like how the surfers get to interact?
0: In my opinion, the, um, the, for the sport, um, the waves have been much more predominantly good for uh, errors and progressive surfing here. Where in uh, the mental wise, you would see everybody surfing at their highest level, but it wasn't so progressive friendly, where you'd see maybe a couple errors, um, some small things throughout the day, maybe a couple big things, but since how it's conditioned based, I feel like Playa Hermosa um, lends itself to have much more of like progressive style conditions where it's kind of windy it's closed out there's a lot of chunky sections you really gotta hunt for it but when you hunt for it and you get something it's uh... you get a lot more reward i feel like the other
3: group that we've seen out here sometimes out front sometimes they're doing a little bit more venturing because there are more waves that are a little bit more user friendly around but are the ladybirds and they've actually had almost maybe more success in terms of like completion rate than the men. What have you been seeing from them that like stands out compared to past years?
0: Well, I just feel like that they're progressing so fast and so new and so different that, I mean, it's the biggest influence or it's the biggest inspiration going. I feel like all the male surfers are more inspired by watching the little girls surf. Than they are by watching their um, their peers, just because it's so new, and so I don't know if uh, if it's they have more makes or if they have you know whatever the ratio is. I just feel like everybody's intrigued to watch them go out and surf because every time like they do something, it could be the best thing a girl's ever done, and so that's a p- pretty big inspiration to a you know 30 year old man who's going out there and trying his hardest when you watch some little girl just go out there and wing one downwind and just make it, you know, so... So I don't know, it's it's definitely an inspiration for sure. It's the biggest, coolest thing going in surfing, I feel like.
3: Yeah, and um, it's interesting because I feel like growing up you'd hear a lot of parents telling their kids, maybe like, you know, don't try errors until you get your fundamentals down. You know, you need to be able to do a perfect cutback and off the lip and stuff. And now We have a bunch of parents on the beach, you know, filming their kids, giving their kids tips, telling them, get back out there, you need to do more airs. Um, And I was wondering if, like, what was your childhood like growing up with Herbie Fletcher as a dad and Christian Fletcher as a brother? Um, Were, was it something like they were telling you to do airs That they were telling you to, you know, learn your fundamentals first? Like, what was your growing up experience with airs?
0: Um, Well, aerials were just starting and surfing. It was like very new and they were just starting in skateboarding. And so I vividly remember my dad, you know, taking me and my brother and Jason Jesse to the big O skate park and be driving, listening to music and him telling us how it's all about airs, It's all about getting radical. People are starting to go above the lip. We need to skateboard because that's what's going to take our surfing to new levels. And it's pretty interesting too, because um, watching my brother learn how to skate. He was a really good skater at a young age, but he learned how to ollie really young. And then Jason Jesse, who turned into a pro skater, he would go to the skate park with us, but him and Christian learned how to ollie together and they were in the sixth grade. And so Jason is known for his frontside ollie because it's one of the best in the business. And if you watch Christian do an ollie on his surfboard, it's very similar to Jason's ollie. And so that was definitely manufactured from my dad telling us uh, about what was happening in surfing and skating and then them carrying on and doing whatever that uh, they were seeing, you know, and so it was just happening The all and then the airs and the backside airs and all that in the skateboarding. And so when Christian was about 12, I remember him going out and doing airs, air Error, like maybe not reverses, but landing backwards, sliding to forwards, coming down, doing a 360, uh, pretty much like airing over guys. Definitely, I remember seeing him doing that anything that was to do with like that. And everybody would tell him how that wasn't surfing, how it, he didn't have any style, how he couldn't turn. He needed to do four to the shore, uh, whatever. And so we obviously see what prevailed in you know surfing. If you pick up any sort of surf magazine, the first five uh, centerfolds or ads, of guy's doing airs. And at that time it was unheard of. And so it's really nice to see that progression and that happened in surfing, but it's really funny to see how people's initial reaction was to radical surfing.
3: And what was your reaction to having a brother like Christian Fletcher? Did it make you want to go out and be like him and do errors, or did you want to kind of like go a different path because he was so good well, at what no, he was I doing? Start.
0: Like when I was 10 years old, I had an eight-foot board by Jerry Lopez where I was going to surf Limea, and by the time I was 12, I surfed Limea. Um I always, I never was a technical guy. Christian liked to play games. He always did tricks, you know what I mean? He was, that was his thing. Like me, I always, the only thing I could do that was gnarly was go big, you know? And so technically that's what I try to do. And I also like turns. And so like I said, Tommy Carroll and Dan Kealoha were my favorite surfers. So basically like if you could ride the barrel like Tommy Carroll or like Dan Kealoha and turn like Tommy Carroll and ride the barrel like Marvin Foster or something backside, like you're gonna be the best surfer there is. But that was like when I was a kid and it was before this whole progressive thing. And so it was like, I wanted to do more what I thought was other people were, thought was gnarly, but just because I skateboarded and rode motorcycles and snowboarded so much, and I pretty much jumped everything and that's all I really did on any other thing. So that's what made me want to get air surfing really was. And once I did like triple say on my motorcycle um that are like however 60 70 100 feet and if you crash you're gonna break your legs this and that and then you're coming into a closeout surfing where it's sand and water and you're gonna go three feet it it just the consequence didn't seem as bad to me and so that's why my opinion is like oh you want to see people go huge because if you see other sports like for instance you know you saw guys go big big and skateboarding and and then the little wheels came out and then street skateboarding and everything. But then, you know, obviously through that became the mega ramp, you know? And so it took Danny Way to, to have his experience through motorcycles, through snowboarding, through skateboarding, through surfing. And then through a skateboarding experience, took all those things and combined it, and then came up with the master plan of the mega ramp to go just bionic, you know? And so when you look at that sort of a mindset, um, we don't really have that in surfing. You know, somebody who's just like trying to go huge. And so I feel like, you know, when you look at people like Evil Knievel, Danny Way, Travis Pastrana, even for instance, like a Sean White in the, you know, in the pipe. But it's like, when you, when you look at those sports, those are brutal, gnarly sports. that guys are going huge, you know? And so I feel like surfing's at that level. We're just, haven't got there. Like how toe surfing, First, it was like paddle surfing, and then it went to toe surfing, because you could go that much bigger toe surfing. And then from toe surfing, the guy started paddling the toe waves, you know what I mean? And so it's all like human evolution. And so I think right now with Stab High, we're just we're just starting to scratch the surface of like what is possible on a surfboard and how big you can go and how you can spin. And, and it's a really interesting time, really.
3: Yeah, and we're learning that with pushing the boundaries, we're... Not, or I should say that with pushing the boundaries of the sport we're also apparently pushing the boundaries of the human (laughs) the human form because we've had a lot of injuries go down this year um so have you had a lot of injuries as a result of errors over the years
0: my injuries have never really been from errors I've definitely like you know hurt ankles or whatever but my injury was from hitting the whitewater at pipeline I broke my leg like I told you and I have a 12-inch rod with two six-inch screws through my thigh into my pelvis and one through my, uh, through my hip into my pelvis and one through my thigh. Um, I broke my wrist in half, uh, skateboarding, broke my leg skiing, so I broke my leg twice, broke my wrist, broke a bottle in my hand, had to get the tendons for my thumb pulled out of my elbow through my palm, broke my sternum, broke my elbow three times, I don't know if I said that. But the fact is all that stuff's from doing almost stupid stuff or just ironic things like getting onto a bike with a bottle and tripping and falling or uh, skateboarding. Definitely knocked myself out a bunch of times, more than five. Uh, But it's never really been from aerial surfing. But my biggest fear from airs isn't breaking your legs or anything. My biggest fear is landing, coming down from a big air and having your foot slip because you're wet and slippery your foot slips and then you go straight to your head onto your board and then you're gonna be brain dead forever. So truly like people are like helmets in big waves, helmets, you know, only over reef, helmets only if it's over 10 feet. But my true opinion is if like, say like right now, like guys should be wearing helmets. They're spinning wildly into the uphill closeouts onto huge sections to where one mistake like that, your board hits you, you knock out, you, you're being resuscitated or die. And so the fact is, is we're seeing injuries, we're seeing, and those are, uh, that's circumstance, right? So under, you know, you might get lucky, 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 and then just the circumstance is you get hurt. But when it's, when when the circumstance really doesn't work for you is when you have a head injury, you know, and so thank God we're yet to see that. And basically um, that's where I feel like anybody can blow out a knee, hurt yourself, whatever, get stitches but I think the next step to where these guys are going is definitely going to be wearing helmets and just going. Yeah, uh,
3: well we definitely, we saw, I think Jeremy Flores really hurt his head doing an air a few years back and that's resulted in him wearing a helmet now, only in bigger waves, ironically, because he did it in a small wave. Um, But we've also seen pretty much every other major sport over the years, you know, from football to hockey to baseball, all these things, Uh, helmets have become mandatory in those sports. Do you think that that is going to become the case for surfing, and if so, kind of in what time period? You know what, I
0: don't know if it'll become mandatory because surfers are so um, slow to get to the point, because I remember being young, like, and my dad would have to go tell people how good Astrodeck was, oh, You want to stick to your, my dad had to go put the stuff on their board. If you you wanted somebody to ride Astrodeck, you'd have to put it on their board. (laughs) And so I just remember going with my dad to go scrape people's wax with acetone and then clean the board, watch my dad put on the Astrodeck. And that's how it got going. But now every board you see pretty much has a traction pad. And if it doesn't, cool, but at the same sense, most of the progressive surfers, and more so even now that you're seeing front foot traction. And so 30 years ago, my dad tried to make front foot traction. Everybody laughed at him. And the same case goes for, imagine the first guy who wore a helmet skateboarding. They'd look at you like, look at this idiot. He's got his helmet on, you know? And then it's like, after enough time, it's like, oh, maybe that is a good idea. Oh, maybe we should make it mandatory. So I don't know when they'll make it mandatory. I don't know when it will become cool enough. I know when I make the right one myself because I'm making a carbon fiber uh, custom-casted helmet for myself. That hopefully will last me the rest of my life, or at least twenty years, so I don't have to think about it. But I feel like what you were saying, like this is Formula One. So like a gath helmet is good for just your average water sport, kayaking, surfing on your soft top, you know, this and that. But when you're cartwheeling at Jaws or say doing one of these huge airs in a land, you're gonna want a Formula One factory helmet, you know, and so The fact is, is we're not there yet. Nobody's put the time into the technology to make them like super tight, super sturdy carbon fiber, only a wetsuit on the inside with a little mini bill. There's one guy in Australia that does it and I forget what his name is. But the fact is, is once people are having custom tailored helmets to their head, where it's not like a, you know, jarring your neck when you land, everything's really good. I feel like then it'll be the time. But until they get to that, it'll be like thousand dollar helmet, you know?
3: Yeah. I'm just amazed, Uh, it sounds like your dad can just see the future. Everything that he did and everything that he's done has kind of like come to fruition, if not immediately, then 30 years down the line. Is he just like a visionary?
0: Um, To be honest, he's an inventor. He just, that's his thrill in life is creating, inventing. And so like he would tell me, you know, when he was young, if you want a surfboard, you make it. You know what I mean? If you wanted the board short, you would strip the glass and cut it down and make it short. If you, you didn't have a leash, so if you would go to Honolulu Bay in the day, you would surf until your board was smashed up at lunch, go and eat lunch, uh, which was probably peanut butter and jelly and coconuts, and then patch your board, let it dry and surf in the evening and it would be done. You'd only get a board for that one session, you know, cause it would be too smashed uh, or it'd be gone as soon as break the fin out. And then if you wanted to travel, you wanted a board bag, you had to make your board bag. So my mom would make the board bag. If he wanted trunks, they didn't sell trunks. You made your trunks. So basically once you do everything on your own, that's the only way your mind thinks. Everything we have is bought. Um, Even the difference between when I was a kid, you had a five board quiver, a three board quiver, like for an average person, five board was like, whoever, Michael Ho or Rabbit or something crazy. But it's like, now you got guys with 30 board quivers, they don't even know what they ride. But the only reason they ride that is because the other 24 guys all have the same 30 board quiver. And so, uh, like once they all of a sudden like jump on some different alternative shape at an electric acid board test, all of a sudden, they're like, "Whoa, I never even knew how fun this was." And you're like, "Oh, yeah, like there's all sorts of fun out there. There's long boards, there's fishes, you know what I mean? And so, I don't know if my dad was is like some visionary. I just know my dad's truly passionate about the love of the sport. he He did everything he could in his name to be able to provide for his family from surfing and so we could surf. And so, It's not that he's really that visionary. It was a necessity to him, you know? There was just no other way he was gonna do it. It's like, he wasn't gonna get a real job. He was gonna make something in the surf industry. And so like when he was young, what he said is he saw guys like Hobie who would make boards, Greg Knoll, um, Velzy, all those people. The only way they could surf all the time was they created a brand of boards and then they would have a shop and sell boards and surf. And so that was really what a surf a professional was, was actually you were marketing yourself and selling stuff, Jacobs, you know what I mean? All the different brands, those are all people that surfed. And that was the first era of figuring out how to get paid to surf. And so it wasn't like you got a salary. There was no such thing as getting paid. It was like, if you were a surfer, you were a burnout or a dropout, you know, you dropped out of society. And so the fact is, once you do all those things, that's the way your brain thinks. Like when you see something, you wanna make it better. Oh, you know, you could do this. It's there's, there's more to come. Like when you see a jet ski, it's like, oh, you know you could pull a surfer. And then once you pull them around enough and you go freeboarding, because I remember doing this, it's like all that. And then it's like, oh no, we could tow somebody into a bigger wave. Oh, look, you can pick the guy up. You know what I mean? Call Terry a to, Uh There's, it's just like common sense when, you, when that's what you're striving for. If you're going for the other side, like making money, like uh, he'll never retire is my point. Like he's put himself where, astrodeck is sold coastal on a brand new surfboard there's never going to be a, a great market for a tail pad is my point like if you sold a pair of trunks you could sell it from california all the way to new york all the way around the world where if you're selling people that are only buying stuff for their new surfboard you're really yeah you really limited your sales to coastal and seasonal but back to so with surfboards though
3: and you know the idea of you growing up and if you wanted something you had to make it or whatever it seems to me like, like when I pick up your board compared to a lot of the other boards here, which have been absolutely destroyed, like we've been dropping off eight boards with the ding repair guy every day, your boards feel a lot more solid to me. Like they feel a little bit heavier and they feel just like more, I don't know, like substantial. Is that something that you do consciously? You get your boards made strong so you can serve
0: them hard? Well, no, it's stretch. <laughs> stretch makes him boards. he pays for the boards and he makes me boards and I break stuff. And you know, that's what I do, and so, Through this time, we've made it to where my boards are much more sturdy than like normal boards. Because if I ride a normal board, I go right through it, I feel like. Um, We put in deck channels. Right now they have like a bamboo leaf spring. And so that's vacuum sealed to the blank. So it makes the blank super strong. And then it still has torsion. My boards actually break or buckle maybe two or three times, but I still ride them. And so basically they just flex, they don't really break. It's interesting, but uh, it's definitely taken time to get it right through epoxy and having the right dampening and and to have the boards feel good, not too heavy. Because like, say if you put a carbon wrap, it's like too thick, too heavy. There's just so many different variations. Like even stretch kind of helped invent that S-cloth, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, what about the design of the board too? Like you've been running those no-no's boards for a while now and they're, they, because of you, they become kind of synonymous with airs. And now we have, Albie Lair, most of his boards here
0: are noseless as well. You know what though, I saw Albie riding them before like even I had them. And I mean, I rode them when I was young too that were noseless. I'd ride a five 2 like a little mini shortboard where I'd cut the nose off and make it round. And for me, I just like the feel of it. I like to grab my nose when I go to paddle. I like the rail channels when I duck dive or when I when I grab my rail. Those are all things that feel good, but I feel like it goes good in the water. And so like the rail channels aren't for grabbing or anything, that's just for strength because it's like a corrugated roof because the fiberglass bends one way and then the length of the board as well. So you have more strength in the outline and then as well as in the center because most boards with a stringer, you still get a lot of twist, right? And so the reason we have the rail channels, they go through the board, but they end in front of the fins because what we are trying to do is take some of the twist out and dampen it, but also direct that torsion towards the fins. And so you can still use the power of the, the twist. And, ooh, that wasn't good. So I don't know if, if it would work for other people, but for me, I've just put, I mean, this is like 18 years of trial and error. And people are like, oh, you don't ride like a, this board, like a square tail thruster. I'm like, I totally would. Every time I do, I just know exactly what it feels like because I've done that. And so for me, I want my boards just to feel like as fast and like responsive as possible, where they hold in as good as possible, but also really loose. Is that where the quad comes in? You get a bit of both on that? I feel like that, but then that weird tail, it really turns well, but it goes flat and goes straight really fast. You can chisel down the line, or you could go up and down, you know what I mean? So for me, it's everything you do to better something, you lose something, I feel like. And so you're trying just to get a little bit out of everything, but not lose all of it, I feel like, for me, and so like if you have a, twinf into a thruster, you're gonna lose something, but you're gonna gain something, So every, you know what I mean? So it's like, for me, I want it more, as much gain as I can have with this little loss.
3: Yeah, and it seems like that board has been made to maximize every single aspect of surfing that you love, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, we're obviously here trying to see who can do the biggest errors, the most interesting and unique errors with the craziest grabs and spins and all that, but You are the master of the straight air, which once again, we saw on Indo last year, we saw you do what was going to be the biggest air ever done um, last year in Hawaii pipeline. Um, And I want to know, do you think the future is up? Do you think the future is spinning around a lot? What is the future of aerial surfing for you?
0: Well, in my opinion, it's everything. but truly through human evolution, I feel like you got to walk before you run, you got to crawl before you walk. And so the fact of the matter is, I feel like we haven't even tapped the potential of the straight air. And the reason that is because you've never seen anybody go over 10 feet high and make it clean. You never seen really people go maybe six or eight feet high. And so um, actually you have, but the fact is, is once you get the straight air to the highest level, it can go then you want to take your spin to that same level. And so same thing with anything, like I said before, first you go up and you kick turn, next thing you know, you grind. After a little while, you're doing a wheeler and then you're doing backside airs. So the same thing goes for me, I'm 45 years old and it's living proof that the is easier because that's what you did say when I was young, going up and then I went to chop hops, got more advanced to like half rotations, full rotations. But the fact is, is, you could take that old basic trick and take it to a whole different realm. And so for me, I want to see people do that. And then I want to see them do that spinning and flipping and grabbing and however, but I feel like if you don't have your fundamental basics down, like you were saying, the parents say, then it's really kind of like, it's like being an abstract artist before you ever learn how to charcoal a bowl, bowl of fruit. You know, it's like, Anybody could say that that's whatever they wanna say, but if you can't charcoal really a bowl of fruit, I don't feel that you have the opinion to say that this is some whatever that is, you know?
3: You have to know the rules before you break them, that sort of thing.
0: Exactly, and so to me that's just whatever, I'm not a master of anything, but I'm a master of having fun and loving what I do, and so basically from having fun and loving what I do, that's what I did, but I hope that's like a trail map for kids in a sense to see like a huge proper straight air and then take their tweak and add something to it. You know what I mean? Because it's like, that's really what it's for. Like it's no end to anything, but really, I feel like we just need to take what we have and take it to that next level.
3: Yeah, I mean, that area you did a pipeline last year was so special because one, I mean, just the still frame image is just striking, but you can just tell on the way down, like you had every intention of landing that air. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, have probably done an air of some variety. And I know anytime that I get above, you know, two feet above the lip or something, it feels like I'm up there for ages. And I almost have, like, you know, you do an air that's a decent size, I think, when you're able to think up in midair about, like, what's happening. I just wonder, what were you thinking up there when you were 15 feet above the lip? I feel like you would have felt like it was, like, 30 minutes you had up there.
0: You know... I guess every situation's different, but I feel like say on that wave, the wave came together so nicely and the way the, the bounce was like I rode this lump and I went off of the lip, I didn't go through it and, the, and it snapped me like a carpet. If you were to shake a carpet dry and so the trajectory just launched me perfect. So to be honest, it didn't feel like what it looked like. It felt like, oh, that was what was meant to be done right there and it needed to be stuck. Like I know I could stick it, but the fact is when I landed, I was landing on an uphill behind the wave. There was no chance of anything to go further, but I was totally controlled on my board where if the landing was right, I would have definitely like went through my board if I had to. Um, and so in that sense, like I just feel that it was the conditions and the waves, but it didn't feel that crazy. And when I came in, I just remember like, oh, Nelly, that was the craziest, biggest air i ever seen. I'm like, I don't know, like, it just felt good. I didn't even stick it or nothing. I just felt like I got a hold of it really well. But he didn't show me the photo or anything. And just like you said, like when I saw, saw the photo, I was like, wow, that's incredible. Like, I, it didn't feel like that is my point. It felt like, oh, I could have made it. It felt like a four foot air where I grabbed it good and I should have made it. Like in my head when I left, I was like, God, I should have made that if I was just a foot or two more forward. Or if I poked the tail out more, I would have come further out, you know, and then landed on a good tranny. But that's not what it's about it's about just seeing what happened and then trying to do that and then other people to see that and because hopefully it gives people inspiration just to go big really big you know yeah Yeah.
3: well that's what on this trip i've seen you surfing a lot all over and as much as you know you're obviously you're not in this event but you still love doing airs and we saw the one you did in indonesia last year to win the monster air award which you didn't even know that you were in the running for, but you, you won anyway. Yeah. But out here, you know what I mean? Like, I've seen you most of the time. You're just going out there and either trying to do a huge turn or yesterday we had some good waves and, you know, there were some barrels to be had. Like, it doesn't look like you're searching for air sections. So do you feel like you're more just responding to kind of the wave in front of you rather than looking for a certain type of thing?
0: You know what? To me, I, I feel like you can't really try an or you can't really force it. And, like, I definitely tried weird little chop hops and bunny hops and... I feel like if you're playing around and having fun with it, when you get presented the opportunity, you're gonna have a better chance at doing something. So I feel like that's part of playing is jumping around. I like to do turns. Um, I like to ride my surfboard basically. But the fact is, is when you're having fun is when you're in tune with like that special moment. And so you can't really force a special moment is my point. You want it to happen, but like today, I got presented with an opportunity and I did a real error. And so I can say for one time on this whole trip, I did an error, I didn't make it, but you'll see it. And the fact is, is that's the way I wanna do an error. So any other thing like hasn't even been an attempt. I might've tried or done something, but there hasn't been a time where I was like, okay, this section is insane, I'm gonna hit it. And so I got one of those today and it made me super happy. But the fact is you get those very rare and especially out here, that's hard to come by as like a a really good proper section. And so the guys that you see out here doing real good, they're on a rhythm. They're like manifesting these peaks. They're like manifesting these peaks. They're like manifesting these peaks. They're
2: like manifesting these manifest peaks. Thanks Mikey. And thank you, Nate, that will be Plenty more Stab High coming as soon as the videos are edited and that series is set to run on Stab Premium. To sign up to Stab Premium, for long-form articles, all of Stab's film projects, and um, both deep dive and, and funny, funny writing. Uh, hit the link in the episode description. What did we learn this week? Uh, I, I, we, we learned that surfboard noses are redundant... We learned that from Bach. We learnt that from Nathan Fletcher as well. What else did we learn? Uh, nothing. That is it. That's all we know. So thank you for listening and see you next week.